from deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. It was a tough night for Florida in their regular season finale last weekend, falling 31-13 to the Seminoles at Doak Campbell Stadium. After the jubilance of beating LSU the week before, it was undoubtedly a sobering defeat for the Gators against their bitter rivals. But when you've got to turn around and play the number one team in the nation the next weekend, there's little time to sulk. Florida and Alabama will compete for the second straight year in the SEC championship game, and today we'll chat with redshirt freshman linebacker Kylan Johnson about the challenges ahead, check in with DB coach Torian Gray, and sit down for another roundtable discussion with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. But first, Kylan Johnson wasn't someone the Gators expected to lean on in the middle of the defense this year, but critical injuries to Alex Anzalone and Jared Davis forced the redshirt freshman into early duty. As he continues learning on the fly the lay of the land in the SEC, we asked the young linebacker what it was like playing in his first sunshine showdown in Tallahassee. The environment was great. Uh, the stadium and stuff was something new that I saw. Like uh, Last year they came here, and I'm just now really starting to understand the game, and it's really seemed to be like... <laughs> You know, it's kind of hostile to me. <laughs> like, they take it very, very serious. So, I mean, I, I couldn't really feel it, like, how all the Florida people feel. But now I felt it. Like, after the game, I felt, you know, this is kind of serious. Like, people take this serious and stuff because I could tell about how the team reacted and the fans, how they was reacting during the game. You had a firsthand look at Dalvin Cook in that game, one of the most explosive playmakers in the country. Was he the toughest guy that you've had to face, or is there anybody else that's comparable in terms of stopping him? Um, he he probably was the best back that I had to tackle this year. You know, he was very shifty, you know, and very fast. So that's what, yeah, he was. When you're facing someone who's that tricky, what do you do? I mean, what what, what are the focuses for you in terms of technique, in terms of what you're trying to do to stop someone who's so dynamic? You just got to stay balanced and stay prepared for any move that he could try to pull on you. If we go back to your early life, can you tell us about where you grew up and about your family? Um, I grew up in Dallas, Texas. I have two bro- one brother and two sisters. Both of my sisters are older than me, and my brother is just a year younger than me. My dad worked for Sherwin-Williams, and my mom, she worked at a bank, um, Bank of America, one of the, like, the top banks in mm-hmm. Dallas. And they basically was at work all the time, and me and my brother, we was together all the time. My sisters, they were in school, so me and my brother went to school together. So we was all, I was more with him than I was with my two sisters. And we always played basketball and football, like, doing, like, you know, fun stuff mm-hmm. that children do at that age. But I had a good good childhood, though. Um, uh, I really, my family's kind of spread it throughout um, the state of Texas. So I had family in Lubbock and Amarillo and, like, Fort Worth, Texas and stuff like that. So I re- it was just really just me and my brother and my two sisters that I, that I grew up around all the time. So you're growing up with your brother. You guys are playing around a lot. When did you really zero in on football? When did you discover that you had this real passion for, for football? Uh, it really started off with my, my um, sister, um, Dominique. 
we used to go out in the front yard and throw football around. And we kind of noticed that I I could throw the football pretty good. Um, so that's why I grew up starting to play quarterback. My dad kind of made me play peewee league football because I came to a point in time where I didn't want to play. <laughs> and he kind of, like, talked to me and, you know, said, like, I'm talented enough to play this sport. So I took in his word and I continued to play. Um, I played eighth grade in middle school. I didn't play seventh grade. And then I finished throughout high school and uh, I ended up here. So the, the really interesting part of what you said there is you were a quarterback. And even going back to your senior year of high school, as a QB, you threw for 36 touchdowns, no picks. That, that's a pretty good year. I think most people would take that type of year. And yet here you are now playing linebacker. So how did you get from being a star quarterback to being a linebacker early in your college career? Um, so my high school, um, we had the quarterbacks. They, uh, Devontae Kincaid, he had went to Ole Miss. So we really didn't have, like, another option at quarterback. And I was the only one that could throw the ball. And I was an athlete, so I could pretty much do anything, catch the ball, run the ball, mm-hmm. tackle. And um, so I played um, safety my first three years. And then when I got the varsity, well, when I got to my last year, my senior year, um, I had went on and played quarterback for the team. So I just ended up having a good year like that. And when I got to college, um, I came in as a safety because that's what I wanted to do because I, um, I had to have surgery on my um, thumb, on my right hand, because during the semifinals um, of my senior year, uh, I tore ligaments in my thumb and I had to have surgery. So I couldn't really throw the ball as good as I used to. So, you know, I just thought it was time to just put the quarterback aside and just go with safety. And when I got here, I mean, it was so much food, it's hard not to gain weight. <laughs> so <laughs> I just transformed into a linebacker. It's not, it wasn't a pretty bad move for me because I could move, so it's kind of helping me. It's like being able to cover and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's really, a, you know, it's, it's kind of good for me. Once you had a taste of that, was it tempting to want to go back to it? Like you're playing safety, then you're like a star quarterback. Do you ever want that again? Does any part of you, like, desire to go out there offensively and do that? I mean, I believe everybody wants the spotlight, but everybody can't have the spotlight. Um, quarterback is good. Only, like, I believe, like, you know, only being a quarterback is only good when you're doing good. Because mm-hmm. if you're doing bad, people are going to talk about you and stuff. Not that that matters or anything, but you make the quarterback the quarterback, I guess you mm-hmm. can say that. So I'm not really too worried about the spotlight. Like, I think I can, you know, do good things at linebacker, you know. So if I can try to be one of those guys at linebacker and still have the the attention and stuff I had when I was playing quarterback, then that would be something that, you know, they wouldn't expect. So I'm here to really just prove a point. Let's talk about how you got here. Growing up in Texas, how did Florida get on your radar and, and what other schools were in the mix for you? Um, I had schools like uh, Wisconsin, UCLA, Kansas State, all those uh, big schools right there. And Coach Shannon recruited me at Arkansas, and he kind of stayed in touch with me, you know, through my, through high school. And when he got the Florida job, he called me, like, the week before, like, signing day. And I had took a visit up here, and I loved it. I loved it up here. So I just thought that this would, you know, I could come here and compete for, you know, any position, and that's what I did. So that's why I ended up here. I feel like this was a good place for me. Texas is the South, 
and then this is like the southeast. So, but they're they're both the south, but very different. What are what are some of the biggest differences you've noticed between being in Texas and being in Florida? Um, the the slang, the way they <laughs> like talk what is what's, what areas is, is the slang most different? What, what was the first thing you heard that you didn't recognize? Um, just a lot of football terms. Like it's it's I'm still learning. Like different stuff that Florida people do. Like I never knew that Florida people put mustard and hot sauce on their fish. <laughs> like I didn't, I didn't know that because usually in in Texas we put ketchup in fish. Like big difference. That's the combination. So when I got here and I, you know, <laughs> they said uh, like they put uh, mustard and hot sauce on their fish. Then that was something new to me. So I mean, Florida people and Texas people definitely live different. <laughs> Is there anything else that, that stands out in terms of just adjusting to the lifestyle down here? Um, the weather, the humidity. Mm -hmm. um, it's not really that humid um, in Texas. It's like a lot of dry heat. So I had to um, get used to every time you're walking outside, you feel kind of sticky and sweaty and stuff. You don't have to run or nothing in Florida to be to feel sticky and nasty. So I, got, I had to get used to that one too because in Texas you walk outside and you could probably go walk a mile and come back, and you still don't feel how you feel <laughs> when you're in Florida. So that's something I had to get used to the weather, too. So you all said you used to playing linebacker here at the University of Florida. And as you've been coming up as a young player, I'm curious which upperclassmen or which teammates have had the biggest impact on you and why. Uh, I think it's um, Jared Davis and Alex Anzalone. They're both, like, you know, veterans. Like, they've been here. They went through, you know, the weightlifting program. They went through the learning, the process. So they really give me tips and stuff of what I should do. Um, I follow them, and I, I kind of look at everything that they do and see how I can improve on what they do so I can be a better player. Throughout your first year when you're redshirting, what are you learning? I mean, what do you take away from that when you look back on it from your year sitting out? Um, I t like I traveled to all the games and I kind of got used to like the atmosphere of like the games and you know what it takes to be successful, what the players did during the off season and stuff. Um, I kind of looked how they practice. They practice hard, and I kind of learned a lot. So by the time I you know became uh, able to play, I kind of looked back on what they used to do and what they didn't used to do. So I try to like I said, I try to you know better myself off what they did. And then you got called into action maybe a little sooner than you expected. Most people expected mm -hmm. when Alex and Jared both suffer serious injuries. So you and David Reese, another freshman, you guys just put into a, a really important spot. So what was your reaction when you realized all of a sudden at such a critical part of the year that you and David Reese now had this, this big responsibility on your shoulders? Um, when we noticed that they were down, um, you know, we said to each other that, you know, it's our time. Uh, we still learning, like as of now, I'm still learning and stuff, but I'm just playing off reaction. Um, so really it's just you go out there and, and show what you can do and you can better yourself next year. So we'll probably, we'll be better players next year. But right now we're young, we're just playing around and, you know, doing what we can to help out the team. Given that partnership, how important is it that the guy you're going through this with is also experiencing it for the first time and to have that in common as you both try and grow? We kind of talk a lot on and off the field about what we need to work on. Um, we sit in the film room. We watch film of what we messed up on in practice or in the game. You know, we really just bond, you know, so that we both on the same page when we get on the field. 
How much have Alex and Jared contributed to your success in terms of their communication with you when they're on the sidelines and you're in the situations that, that they've always been in? Um, they're like coaches out the field. When they see that we've messed up on something or misfitted anything, we'll come off to the sideline and they'll sit us down and talk about what we need to fix and like what would be better to help us. They were such a critical part of the defense in terms of leading that entire defense. Has any of the responsibility shifted because you guys are the ones out there? So is, are you still doing all the same things that they would do? Or have those responsibilities maybe been split up a little bit more among the defense? Um, they're still leaders. They travel to the games too, so their leadership is still there. And they, I don't think they expect us to just be you know, leaders right away. So it kind of split up in between like the D-line and the, and the secondary. So they all have stepped up in terms of like the leadership to help us out and help the team out. You're almost at the end of year one now. What's your most memorable moment so far on the field? Um, just playing with everybody, getting wins together, and celebrating the, you know, the moment. You're a 24-point dog against Alabama, and everyone knows that it's, it's a really, really big challenge. What's the mindset of the team going into a game like this that so few people are giving you a chance to win? Uh, we're going in here, you know, focused, and we're going to be ready. Not going to talk too much on the Alabama game. Everybody just need to watch the game because we're going to go in here and prove the world wrong. When there's so many people doubting you, where does the confidence come from? Where do you draw that from? Um, you know, people have doubted us all year. You know, they didn't think we was going to have as, as many wins. They didn't think our team was going to be good. So we've really been, you know, no one believes in us but us. Alabama's got a really explosive offense. They have a dynamic quarterback in Jalen Hurts. What have you seen from them on tape, and what stands out in terms of what they do? You know, they're a pretty good sound offense, like you mentioned. We just had to fit our gaps and play football. The keys are, um, you know, keeping contain of the quarterback and, you know, covering the, the raw receivers because they're fast and stopping the run game. You know, those should be the keys of the game. Part of the challenge in playing Alabama is finding weaknesses, of which there don't seem to be many, if any. That's because a team once known for their defense has added a dynamic offense to its repertoire and has opened up big plays down the field. That's one of the things keeping DB coach Torian Gray awake at night, and Jeff Cardozo talked to him about the game plan heading to Atlanta. I tell you, the first year to, to be on this team and to be able to make it to Atlanta and play in the SEC Championship is a great experience, and we're looking forward to the challenge, and obviously we're going to have to play well on our, on our end of things. And you knew from afar how tough it is, how tough of a conference this is to now make this in year one for you and back-to-back years for this team. That's got to be pretty special. It's unbelievable, and um, I think I read something that might be wrong here that Coach Mack is the first coach in his first two years to make it to the SEC Championship game, something you don't take for granted something that's definitely not easy I know my last so many years um, from the last place I came from we didn't make it back to that (laughs) SEC championship game after getting there multiple times so you know I know uh, you definitely appreciate it when you can get to this game Uh, and I know you appreciate uh, what you guys have been able to do and you know all the hype that's been on on Quincy and and Tabor the the entire year they've lived up to it so just how to week to week go through that and knowing how they're going to be attacked and the things they're going to do I tell you those guys have done an unbelievable job this year. Um, of course, they've had hype coming into the season, but to put those guys under the stress that we put them on, play in and play out, we basically 
lead them on the line, and we play a lot of press man coverage. And those guys have held up there in the bargain and then some. And, you know, without them being able to play at the level they play that for the most part, pretty consistently, um, you know, we wouldn't be as successful as we are as a defense. And even now with the injuries and, and saying that, that's got to help because uh, it alleviates some pressure from some of these younger guys coming in. But these younger guys have been good. And then and even a guy that's been around, what about Marcel Harris? What the heck's going on with that guy? He's been playing unbelievable. I, I couldn't be more proud of a, a young man that I've coached. Um, he's a guy who's just, um, since I got here in the spring, just worked and been diligent. And, you know, when you're splitting him with, with Nick Washington, who's also doing a great job till he got injured versus LSU, those guys were splitting time and both were playing at extremely high level. But Marcel's just been been awesome um, since since um, Mays went out and since Nick's been out and he, he's played at a whole different level. You ever put on a hit like uh, he did on, on Francois? <laughs> I don't think I've ever put on one that hard, um, running that hard and not breaking stride on a guy without him, with him seeing me. Yeah. You know, maybe I put on a hit that hard without a guy seeing me, but he's he's been impressive. When, when you see that in the film room, what do all the rest of the guys do in that reaction? We all know how hard it is to play this game and to tackle the guy, and especially in open field especially a good athlete and to see some of the things that Marcel has done with his tackling which has been really off the charts here of late um, you know we all just ooh and ah because you know um, if you put ourselves in that position or if the other guys put themselves in that position that's not the easiest thing to do. And Alabama is going to be a different kind of test because you talk about tackling they've got a guy that can run so when, when you look at what your group has to do back there how do you do that? How do you stay on coverage and then if he breaks containment how do you coach that up? You know the most frustrating thing is to have guys covered and the quarterback either lose, get outside of contain and um, now it, it applies extra pressure or the quarterback to just make a play and you got everything covered downfield, and this guy's done this time after time after time, and it's it's just a killer to a defense because you think you got him, you got him covered, and then all of a sudden he's scrambling, and he's not just scrambling and getting first downs, he's scrambling getting touchdowns. So, you know, it's just an added dimension that he brings to an offense, and um, you know we gotta we gotta be able to handle handle it. In that dimension, too, the guy can still throw, and he's got a nice completion percentage thrown for some touchdowns. So when you look at what their receivers can do, what are some of those wow. things? You know what? They do a great job um, with their offense as far as getting those guys the ball, getting um, 3 and 13 the ball. They get them to them in quick, easy throws, nice, easy throws where those guys can make plays after the catch. They get them to them on a little reverse uh, reverses where they can make plays out of sketch, but he's also throwing the ball downfield to those guys, which they can block things up and, and try to throw it over your head. And I mean, they've connected on a lot of different ways, so it's not easy to take those guys out of the game because they're getting to them in ways where, you know, they're going to be able to catch the ball with screens and, and things of that nature. So, I mean, they present a, a hell of a challenge for us. With this being a dome, does that make a, a difference, whether it's open air with wind or factor, or is that just a, a non-factor? Well, they don't have to worry about the elements as far as their throw game, the run game. But, we, I mean, we got the same elements also um, for our team. But, you know, the dome just it makes it easy. makes yeah. it easy um, to, to execute. should make it easier. How's the week been uh, practice-wise? I know it was maybe some disappointment after the Florida State game. But, you know, you guys had a really good week before that. So are, are these guys ready? Yeah, we're definitely ready. You know, we've had a great week of preparation. And, you know, you have to be focused and, and intent with each rep that we took this week. I think our guys done that to be ready to play here. As the Gators prepare to take on the Crimson Tide, most experts agree it would be a historic upset if Florida is able to beat the defending national champions. But as they say, there's a reason they play the games, and the Gators are hoping to shock the world on Saturday afternoon in the Georgia Dome. But to do that, 
they'll have to be significantly sharper than they were in Tallahassee. And we begin our roundtable discussion with Scott Carter and Chris Harry by breaking down where things went wrong against FSU. Well, Adam, I mean, it was obviously a disappointing performance because the Gators are coming off one of the biggest wins they've had as a program in quite some time. And you wanted to see that momentum kind of be maintained and, and give uh, them uh, some real confidence heading up to Alabama. And, uh, you know, the first drive looked really good. The Florida goes down the field, what, 73 yards and eight plays. They're at the two-yard line. They decided to go for it, make an early statement. And that one uh, didn't work. And then really the offense just had major struggles from that time on. And uh, Florida State, the game was still there for most of it within striking distance, but the Gators just couldn't make the big play. I mean, their two biggest plays of the game happened on that first drive. And uh, when you do that, that's not usually a good sign for the offense. And, uh, you know, Florida finished with a season-low 207 yards. Um, Florida State won for the sixth time in seven years in that robbery, the fourth year in a row. And, you know, my biggest takeaway is just you realize that for the Gators to truly get to where they want to go, for Jim McElwain to kind of get the program the way he wants it to be, they've got a big hurdle there. They've got to start beating Florida State again and uh, win some of those recruits. And uh, I think as that game ended and they walked off the field and hopped on the bus for the drive back, that that was just what stuck in my head. I mean, the Gators are certainly making progress going to Atlanta two years in a row, but you got to beat Florida State to truly – be the king of the state. And part of that progress, Adams, getting fans excited again on the mm-hmm. offensive side of the ball. Scott referenced the 207 yards, which was a season low, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, but one at 73 yards on the first drive and 55 on the last when FSU was just backing out. So yeah. that's a lot of three and outs in between. They rushed for the ball for 58 yards. The, the running game was a lot better the week before at LSU against a pretty good run defense. So it must have been a very discouraging ride home on the bus and then to wake up the next day and all of a sudden say, okay, well, you know, we have to, we have to find some answers to some things because we got a lot more questions and maybe a lot more problems going up to Atlanta to face Alabama team, which, you know, by all accounts looks not only like the best team in the country, but looks virtually unbeatable. And that's what Jim McElwain, that's how he's going to spell it to his team this week, uh, the ultimate challenge, you know, in Atlanta. You come to training camp to go to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. He's done that for two years in a row. Last year, uh, Gators got to Atlanta. The game was probably a little bit closer than a lot of people thought, but there were some struggles in that game offensively. But Billy Donovan used to say, you can't win it unless you're in it. He talked about the NCAA tournament. Same thing about the Southeastern Conference. Going to Atlanta for a second year in a row and see what happens. He's got a very similar mentality than they took to LSU uh, two weeks ago. Nobody really gave him a chance in that one. They pulled a surprise. And then I think last week, a lot of people were thinking they, they might win at Florida State. Mm-hmm. And so it went sour, and now they're back to kind of that where they were, that mentality going out to LSU. Nobody expects them to win this game. Can they pull another surprise? You know, we don't know, but what we do know is the one has done it against Alabama this year. I want to get your thoughts on something you talked about last week. You had mentioned Jim McElwain saying – one thing they haven't done here in two years is really win back-to-back mm-hmm. impressive games and have two performances they can stack up and say we're building momentum here clearly. Where is that lacking? Why do you think that continues to be such a struggle to connect those dots? Well, I think when you look at this program, and it, it, it really extends beyond McElwain's tenure, but it's been true under his tenure. It goes back to offense. If you don't have a consistent playmaking offense – you're not going to win consistent big games. I mean, that's just a, the sport. Uh, for Florida, 
you know, they didn't win big out in LSU with their offense, but they made the plays when they had to. I mean, that 98-yard pass from mm-hmm. Appleby to Cleveland, I mean, that's one of the biggest plays that the Gators have made in a long time offensively. And you knew that to win at Florida State, they were going to need a few of those kind of plays, and they couldn't hurt themselves. And, you know, uh, they just didn't have it. They didn't make those plays. And that's what McElwain said afterward. He said, no explosive plays, line couldn't block the run, they didn't protect Appleby. I mean, Adam, you add those three things up, that means uh, 207 yards and a lot of three and outs, like Chris mentioned. Uh, you know, they just got to do something better there against Alabama uh, to be in that ball game, uh, and we'll see. I mean, it's going to be—it's a difficult, difficult challenge, but I think overall, when you look at why they haven't been able to maintain some success on the biggest stages when they're playing the best teams, it's because of some of that inconsistency on offense. And and obviously the. The attention's going to fall on the quarterback position. What's mm. the number of quarterbacks that have started since Tim Tebow graduated? Uh, I think it's at ten. Is it at nine? nine I was going to say nine 10. or ten, yeah. if, if not maybe eleven. And to have Austin Appleby, a graduate transfer, come in here from Purdue. I mean, it's just asking a lot to the the way the offensive line. You know, very difficult challenge uh, blocking. Florida State, when you don't have any running game to play action off of, mm-hmm. um, it was a difficult situation for him. <laughs> and yeah, I'm looking at the Alabama statistics. Uh, they're the number one running defense in the country. They're giving up 68.7 yards per game. You know, So the, the offensive staff is going to have to get pretty darn creative this week to come up with some kind of plan for success. And they'll put something together. But, uh, you know, you talk about a Florida offense now that's ranked 114th in the country out of 128 teams, which is right where it was when the season ended last year. So uh, not a lot of growth there, but there are some playmakers on the team. We've seen them. We've seen what Jordan Scarlett can do. We see what young Tyree Cleveland can do. We know what the tight ends can do, and you can get the ball to them. But you got to get some help from the offensive line. you got to give that guy protection to find some playmakers downfield. Let's talk about Alabama, and it seems like in the moment we can get caught up in the hyperbole of the number one team at the time and try and – make a grander statement about where they are historically. But there's a lot of people that believe, Jim McElwain even echoed this, that this could be Nick Saban's best team in Alabama, which is really scary stuff if you're anybody outside of Tuscaloosa. But uh, from from what you've seen, do you think that's accurate? Certainly uh, right there with his best teams. I mean, it's got the usual great defense uh, that the program has had under his direction. One wrinkle is this year. I mean, they're doing this with a true freshman quarterback. I mean, uh, mm. Jalen Hurts is a guy that he went into his first game against USC earlier this year. A lot of people like, okay, if this team has a question mark, it's a quarterback. Uh, they lost Jake Coker from last year's national championship team. Uh, and, you know, when they won it with uh, earlier, they had McCarron. They were guys who had been in the program a little bit and got their chance and made mm. the most of it. Well, this kid, first game at Alabama, he rushed for a couple touchdowns, passed for a couple touchdowns. They beat USC 52-6, to first player in like 15 years to have two passing and two rushing touchdowns in a game, and he hasn't let up since. And if you look at the difference of maybe what this Alabama team has compared to some others, he's a playmaking quarterback of the nature that the other guys weren't. Some of those guys that we talked about earlier, they were more game managers. This guy can take over a game mm. if needed, and he's only a true freshman. So, I mean <laughs> – Good luck the rest of the SEC because <laughs> he's got a machine up there rolling and uh, until somebody knocks him off. I mean, it's Alabama and everybody else. Well, the defense has given up 18 points in the last month and no touchdowns. So yeah. they've allowed six field goals. I don't know. Now. I may take them against <laughs> the Browns right now. I mean, that's where they are. I mean, that's, that argument, I feel like every couple of years when we have a really dominant college team. It's a ludicrous, ar- it's a ludicrous argument. It is a, it's a ludicrous argument. It's a fun argument. little line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now oh, look yes. how upset you got, Chris, yes, just yes. by saying Well, that. that's, that's the NFL. <laughs> I'm, with his, I'm with him on this. 
what I mean. There's not a, a great college <laughs> team's not going to beat a poor NFL team. It's a demand against boys. I just, I just can imagine what it's like to be an offensive coach and to be in the room and just trying to break down tape against Alabama mm-hmm. and and find a weakness. I mean, you're not going to run the ball on them, like I said, and and they don't have to blitz because their defensive line is so good. So they got great defensive backs back there, great linebackers. And how many defensive touchdowns have they scored this year, Scott? Um, they had scored a defensive touchdown in ten consecutive games until. The LSU game, wow. but they, they had not. They didn't score one last year against Florida in the SEC championship. But every game since then to LSU this year, they'd score. I mean, that's an amazing. So they stat. have a third of the touchdowns that Florida has. Thirty touchdowns. I think McElwain, on, They have a third of the number of on made, defense. Of, he by may himself. have used the right term. I th- he called them creatures. He says yeah. Alabama has <laughs> has a lot of several creatures. creatures and behind the creatures up front, they have creatures on the bench. Yeah. So that pretty much kind of gives The only it. other word that would be cyborgs, maybe, <laughs> right? we, could, we could go with, yeah. Let's put this in, in a lab, right? Let's, let's cook something up here. What does Florida do? Like, that's the question that all Gator fans have, and, and they're seeing. I was watching ESPN yesterday, and there was a, on College Football Live, they literally had as their topic of conversation, will Florida score a touchdown in the SEC championship? I mean, that's not a recipe to go win the SEC championship, so let, let's well, put only in the up. game. they were only in the game last year because Antonio Callaway sure. set a record with an 85-yard punt return. That's a good place to start with mm. uh, some kind of uh, uh, a play like that, uh, whether it's a defensive play or you know, capitalize on a mistake. It's certainly Florida's defense is certainly capable of causing Alabama some problems. He just can't be on the field all the time. Last year, it was 7-2, to two, and 10 of Florida's next 12 possessions were three plays or less. Mm. You can't roll the defense out like that. We saw what happens to Florida's defense uh, when they're on the field constantly. We saw what happened at Arkansas. We saw what happened at Florida State. Just eventually uh, players, uh, good players and playmakers on the other side are going to take over, and certainly Alabama has plenty of those guys. Yeah, I mean, it, it starts with number one, can't hurt yourself. No can't, turn- can't have the Florida yeah, State. No turnovers, quarter. limit your penalties. You have to cash in when you get the opportunities. Can't throw a pick six on the first play of the game like at no. Arkansas. No, right? no. So, right, right. number one, I mean, that's what Alabama thrives on. So, you've got to avoid all that. And number two, uh, whether it's a, a defensive touchdown, a special teams touchdown, a huge play, blocked a kick, whatever, they got to do something that is off the, the beaten path. I mean, you have to make some special plays and get some breaks. I mean, that's I really think those two things are probably – the biggest key, and, you know, we'll go back to the offense. I mean, it's what we're going to talk about a lot because uh, they're going to need more than 207 total yards. I mean, you're going to have to put some offensive numbers up and, and challenge Alabama's defense. Maybe see if you can get them a little tired by sustaining drives. But, you know, that, that's where it is. I mean, it's it's a monumental task. Nobody's giving the Gators a chance. But, you know, like Chris said earlier, I mean, or like Billy D, what did he say? Uh, you can't win it unless you're in it. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's as good a statement as any. That's how you sum up a game like this. So what Florida needs is basically the LSU performance and then some. Because, I mean, LSU, I think there's one I mean, penalty for five yards, no turnovers, got three turnovers. Got a 98-yard touchdown. Right, right, it's got to right. be some type of combination of those factors it, and then some. Yeah, Adam, when you think about that, I think if we look back at that LSU game, I think Florida only had, I think it was 247 yards of offense in that game and 98 of them on, on the one play. Mm-hmm. Uh, they only had 60 yards in the first half. I mean, I, I, I'm, this is all going off the top of my head. So they made a big play. You're going to need a couple of them in a game like this. And again, the you know we just sit there and talk about Alabama's defense. Alabama's defense, um, uh, total offense. They're number one, number two in the league in total offense, also, mm-hmm. and the and the second best running team in the league. So um, they're going to try to be on the field. They're going to try to wear Florida's defense down. And uh, this, you know, it's a monumental challenge. Uh, we were talking about before we came on air here. What is it? The largest uh, point spread, second largest point spread sure. 
uh, in SEC championship history. This is the 25-year anniversary of the game. They're inviting all the former MVPs back. There'll be a parade of some Florida players there and some Alabama players and obviously some Tennessee players. Terry Dean's going to be there. Danny Werfel's going to be there. Tim Tebow's going to be there. Ellis Johnson, the defensive lineman from that classic 94 Alabama-Florida uh, game, is going to be there. So, uh, you know, there'll be a lot of festivities about it. Uh, you kind of hope that uh, that it can be a, a game worthy of, of something like that because the SEC championship game, for all intents and purposes, started a new era of college football that no championship game exists that there was actually a a, a mac championship game believe it or not was it really yes and there wow. and it, it was a obscure rule in the ncaa logbook saying if you had a at least 12 teams in in a league you were allowed to split in divisions and have two winners could play in that championship game roy kramer the sec commissioner at the time found that rule and said hmm let's think about this next you know Hello, Arkansas. Hello, South Carolina. Hello, 12 teams. Hello, SEC championship game. And really, college football hasn't been the same since. There was a really good 30 for 30 about that as well. I think it was one or two years ago about how they created the SEC championship right. game, what it meant for college football. Right. And I was, I was at that first one in the in Legion Field of Birmingham. Had it four miles from the SEC headquarters. Alabama certainly had a nice home field advantage considering they played a lot of their home games there. And uh, it was just a hell of a, a concept and uh, so much fanfare for that game. Alabama ended, it was number two in a country on their way to a national championship. And uh, Florida had them right there. And, of course, the Lantonio Langham's interception at the end of the game. I was talking to Steve Spurrier yesterday about it. The next year, of course, Florida and Alabama are back in again. Antonio Langham got suspended for taking money from an agent right before the week of that game. And Florida went in there and beat him in a rematch of the game. And, of course, they played in the first, uh, I think, five of the first six years of that game. So while we're talking history, we believe this is the biggest underdog Florida's been in the modern I can't era. remember another one. I mean, maybe when they played Alabama. 23, 24 Maybe points. when they played Alabama when they were 0-10-1 and, and lost 40 nothing in Gainesville, mm-hmm. I think, with uh, Bear Bryant against Charlie Pell. That, That's I, almost 40 years ago. Yeah, it's almost 40 yeah. years ago. That's so right. modern era. This, right. So this, it, it's safe to say if Florida finds some way to pull this off, it's – is it the biggest upset in Gator football history? Is that, I think is it that may fair? be one of the biggest upsets in SEC history. Yeah, I mean, it would be there with the uh, one, what, in 19, uh, what was that, 63 when they went out to Tuscaloosa. Yeah. Alabama had never, uh, what, lost in their home stadium uh, to an SEC team. Or what was the story? Or Bear Bryant hadn't. Yeah, maybe. Bear Bryant yeah. had hmm. lost to. Anyway, that was a Ray Graves win, signature win. But, yeah, it would it would certainly match, be up to one of those. Moving off, we can talk some hoops. I know that you were in Orlando over Thanksgiving with the team, Chris, and, you know, pretty solid returns. I mean, lost the first game of the year to Gonzaga, who's proven themselves early on to be a top-ten team. But outside of that, a lot of really positive signs. No, you look at the field uh, of the AdvoCare Invitational, and uh, Florida ended up playing, you know, three really good high-major teams, and they defeated Seton Hall. They lost number 11 Gonzaga by five and then beat Miami. Those are all three. Those are three teams that are in the NCAA tournament last year. Uh, Miami was in the Sweet 16. Now, they lost some players, but they got some very good players, and they're going to be a middle-of-the-pack ACC team and have a good chance to be in the NCAA tournament. Gonzaga is uh, just a walking Sweet 16 team as as big as they are right now. Um, Florida gave a good accounting for itself. They certainly had a chance to to win the Gonzaga game. That would have put them in the final against Iowa State. You don't know what would have happened there. But I think they discovered some things about themselves as far as – They're trying to find a little identity. I think I said from the beginning there was going to be some discovery phase with this team finding out without Dorian Finney-Smith, that was a guy that they kind of looked for him last year. Now it can be a different scorer every night. I think they found that out, uh, whether it's Canyon Berry early on in the season, whether it was Kayvon Allen early on in the season, a little slow start for him. 
uh, Johnny Bunu, Devin Robinson, certainly his five out of six games in double figures. He's shown a consistency uh, that's kind of been missing. And then we met Keystone. Um, and I've been saying all along, the guy is a very, very talented offensive player. Uh, his first six games, I think he was two for 15. He was 0 for 6 for 3. You know, I see the guy every day in practice. I knew this guy's a very, very talented offensive player. The team knew that. They knew it was just a matter of time. He's, he just needed a game. He was pressing. He needed some confidence to hit him. Uh, and he found that against a good Miami team, 15 points, 8 rebounds. And, damn, if he doesn't go out uh, the next uh, – they had the next day off and the first practice – Tuesday, he had one of his best practices of the season. So, where does he fit into the rotation? I think they got to figure some stuff out. Does he take minutes from Justin Leon, who Mike White loves and a very reliable rebounder and defensive player? Does he take some minutes from Canyon Barry? Does he, they move some things around with on the perimeter? We'll find out. But uh, they play at North Florida Thursday night. They played there last year in the NIT because the O-Dome started uh, construction. They had to play up there. So it's actually a true road game against a mid- to low-major team, however you want to bracket uh, North Florida. And they sell beer there. So uh, I'm telling you. <laughs> is, it, is, that, it, is that why you're going? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'd probably go anyway. But I, if, if, if I was up there and I didn't have any, any like, uh, you know, horse in the race, maybe I would be sitting there watching them. But I tell you what, I sat on the floor right in front of the student section last year, and I probably will again Thursday. And uh, – they get, they get after a little bit. And that was at spring break last year, so the, the fans will be in full force. And it's not often that a team like Florida goes into a place like UNF and plays a true road game. And that will be Florida's really first time they've done something like this since playing at Yale in 2013. The other part of this, too, is that while Florida's playing all these games away from home out of necessity – it's doing wonders for them in the RPI. I mean, they're up in the top five right now, RPI-wise. I think they, it's going to fluctuate. I think they're probably going in this game. They'll be around seven or eight, maybe even six. It depends on some outcomes of the games. But absolutely, every game's a, a true, bona fide, neutral site game. Um, and that's only their RPI situation is only going to improve because next week they go to Madison Square Garden to play Duke on a neutral floor, and then five days later go to Florida State. It's an incredibly talented team Leonard Hamilton has now uh, to play a, a, another true road game. Uh, Florida, will, and then they get another one down in Sunrise, and then finally December 21st they're going to open the game in the Exact Tech Arena at O'Connell Center. I went into it yesterday, got a tour of it. It is shaping up. They're putting the finishing touches in the locker rooms and such. I went in the women's locker rooms for for volleyball and for and for basketball saw the men's locker rooms the gymnastics it's I mean these athletes this is long overdue and I think they're going to be pleasantly surprised it's going to be a lot brighter in there everyone's going to have a seat their own seat there are no more bleachers and uh club level is going to be pretty cool for the people that are going to pony up to be up there so a lot to be excited about with Florida basketball and, and Mike White to his credit had these guys off to a good start against some difficult circumstances and they're not talking about the discomforts of always taking all these buses. And believe me, it's a grind to be in these hotels and to be mm-hmm. on these buses all the time. But they're not talking about it. They're just uh, they're just doing it and performing and growing along the way. And uh, we'll see what happens from here. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to Gator Tales on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher and leave a review to help us continue to grow. The SEC Championship game kicks off on Saturday at 4 o'clock, and you can watch it live on CBS or listen on the Gator IMG Sports Network. Be sure to join us next week as we turn our attention toward basketball and more here on the official podcast of the Gators. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Atlanta. Atlanta.